All right, good morning. Welcome to episode 31 of The Plan. We've been going at this since September, telling the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end and focusing on the plot elements that connect the entire story together. And it's really exciting to be this close to Easter when we reach the climax of the entire story, not the end, we're still going to do Acts during the month of May, but the, the climax, the, the peak of what all this has been leading to is next week, and I'm really excited about that. And today we get to tell the, the story of Holy Week and this confrontation between Jesus and the powers that are in Jerusalem. But before we get into that, we need to remind ourselves of the story that we've been telling for the last 30 weeks and put this all into context. So the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. God made the world, he made human beings, and he made them for a, a function. And their function is to rule over the world on his behalf. And then, so he put them there to, to rule for him, and then he came down to live with them on the seventh day. And that's the, the pinnacle of creation. That's the one day for sure that we know everything was going right. And then human beings messed it up. We disobeyed God, and we kept disobeying God, and we kept uh, being the weak link in God's plan because we didn't want to obey him and build his kingdom. And so eventually God enacted this, this plan to restore his design to the world through one group of people, the Israelites. So he gave them one patch of land to be their place, and he gave them the law of Moses to define their purpose, and he came down to live with them in the temple so that the world could look at Israel and see the plan, at least in one little patch of land on earth, the plan was working, and they could look at that and understand who God is and what he wants for his people. That was the idea. But it turns out that Israel is just as bad at obeying God as all the rest of us are. And so they kept messing it up, and they kept messing it up, until finally God said, the only way I can display to the world who I am through this group of people is to show that, I, that, they're, that this is not it, that they're not doing what I want. And so he sent them into exile to show that they, what, their kingdom was not the kingdom he wanted. So they've been in exile for about 500 years, and then Jesus appears on the scene. He's the one sent by God to restore Israel to the plan. He starts announcing the kingdom of God is near. And that's what that would have meant to the people who he was preaching to, is that he is, God is putting things back together, and he's getting us back into the plan, and, and everything's going to work again. And then Jesus started healing people and forgiving people and, and re basically reconciling people to God and putting together this group of Jews who were in proper relationship with God. And he preached and he explained to people how the way they had been doing, they'd been trying to follow God for the last 500 years had been mistaken. It had been the wrong direction to go. And he warned them, if you keep going this direction, it will lead to your destruction. Instead, follow my way. And he, the Sermon on the Mount is the kind of the key description of the way of Jesus. And then last week, we talked about the fact that at a key moment in his ministry, Jesus reveals to his disciples what they were already guessing, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who's supposed to inherit the throne of David. And so he is the leader, the, the leader of Israel. He's the one who's supposed to bring them into this new age. And he's kept that a secret. He told them not to tell anyone. But as we go into the, but he told them we're headed to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the Messiah was supposed to have his confrontation with the powers that be and establish his kingdom. So when somebody says, hey, I'm the Messiah, let's go to Jerusalem, you know it's a big deal, right? 
So that's where we left off the story, and today we're going to look at what happens when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and has this confrontation that everyone's anticipating. So as we read the opening passage, remember how we keep our our, uh, bearings when we're using the plan. Who is the story about? Where is their home, and what's their relationship to their home? Uh, How can they meet with God? And what did God tell them to do? And in each of those four parts of the coordinates, we're going to see important themes for this story that we want to keep in mind as we read through Holy Week. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, so we'll pause there. So who is the story about? It's about Jesus and the Jews. So the Jews are God's people, his chosen people, through whom he's going to save humanity and the world. And Jesus is their leader. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus announced that he was the Messiah to his disciples and told them to keep it a secret. But in this point of the story, this is when Jesus broadcasts it to everyone. He has publicly declared himself as the Messiah. Now, if you missed it, it's probably because their culture is very different. They didn't have um, billboards, Facebook ads, radio. They didn't have all these ways to get everybody together and announce your candidacy for a role. So what they would use is symbolism. And in the Old Testament, it predicts that the the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on a foal, on a donkey. And so when Jesus is riding on a donkey, using all these, like the the coats on the ground, that's that's a royal imagery, and the, the palms are a royal imagery, and there's all kinds of royal stuff going on here. What he's doing is he's publicly declaring to all of Jerusalem that he is claiming the throne that he is putting himself up as a candidate for Messiah. Which makes it important that we remember where they are right now. They are in Galilee and Judea. That's their homeland. Those are Roman provinces. Which means that when Jesus claims to be king, there are some very powerful people who will dispute that claim. There's already someone who claims to be king of those areas. His name is Caesar. And he's got quite a few men with swords that agree with him. And so it's a rather risky thing to come into Jerusalem and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, especially when you don't have a single soldier following you, when you're followed by a bunch of fishermen and healed beggars and um, you know, just the dregs of society, so to speak. It's a bold claim. But there's another confrontation that's happening here, not just between the two kings, but also... Um, when you think about, when you remember this issue of how they can meet with God, how do the Jews think they can meet with God? Well, they think that the place to meet with God is in the temple. Some of them think God is in the temple. A lot of them don't, have noticed that God never actually returned to the temple, but they expect when we're able to meet with God, it's going to be in the temple. However, what we know following the story of the New Testament is that God is actually present in Jesus. And so Jesus is the temple. He is the true temple. He is the place on earth where you can be in the presence of God. So this isn't just going to be a clash of kings, but it's actually also going to be a clash of temples. The last thing is, 
we look at purpose. What are the main characters supposed to be doing? Now, last week we talked about the mission of the, of the uh, Messiah, which is to take the throne, and that's what Jesus is here to do. But today what I want to focus on is the purpose of the people of Jerusalem, because they're the ones who take on a mission during this passage. Because those words that they said during the procession, during the, the triumphal entry, were not just any old words. They were from a psalm, Psalm 118. And here's what the psalm says. Lord, save us, which is what Hosanna means. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118 is a story about... Um, God's servant who wins a victory and comes to Jerusalem and goes up to the temple and all of Jerusalem joins with him in celebrating and recognizing this victory and in in following him. So when the people start reciting this psalm as Jesus is coming to the temple, you can see by the words of the temple, they're saying, yeah, this is the guy. We're with him. God is with him. And so they're taking on this role in the story that Jesus is acting out of being the people who follow this Messiah. So the purpose for people who say those kinds of things as Jesus is riding in Jerusalem is to welcome Jesus as king. And that's what I want to focus on as we tell the story of Holy Week. There is so much. You could write a million sermons on the content of Holy Week, which is good for me because I have to write one at least once a year, right? So <laughs> thankfully, there will still be more material next year. And, but, so I'm going to focus on just part of it. And what I want to focus on is this aspect of the story, which is the people's job, uh, the, the calling of the Jewish people to follow Jesus, because that's been a big part of the plot for the last several weeks since we've been in the New Testament, is that Jesus came to restore Israel to the plan. So he's calling them to return to him. He's calling the Israelites to choose a different path, a better path. And and this is the climactic moment when he's forcing them to make a choice. By coming to Jerusalem and putting on this parade, he is forcing the Jews to make a choice. And I want us to understand that choice because it's a choice that all of us make. And I don't think any of us make it any better. So let's look at the story of Holy Week. The first thing Jesus does as he comes into Jerusalem is one of the most provocative things he does in, in his entire ministry. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he sa- and as he taught them, he said, it is, ri- is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, often when we read the story, this is called the the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus does this, we often will talk about it as the the issue is the um, money. The issue is corruption. The issue is having money lenders in the temple, and that's a problem. So people will bring, I remember this being brought up when we were talking once about churches having ATMs in the foyer and that kind of thing. Like, that's money changers in the temple. And, And that kind of thing does seem to be what Jesus is focusing on in, um, John's account of an earlier incident when you're reading the Gospel of John. But in these stories, in in this part of of Jesus' ministry, it's not about the money changers. Here's what happens when you go into the temple. First of all, you cannot use normal Roman currency in the temple because it has Caesar on it. 
Okay? So you have to change your money because the money that's good in the temple isn't good anywhere else, and the money that's good everywhere else isn't good in the temple. So you have to have the money changers to, to be able to buy anything in the temple. And unless you're going to bring your spotless goat all the way from Rome with you to the temple to make sacrifices, you're going to have to buy a goat when you get there. So you're going to have to have money, right? So when Jesus uh, turns over the tables and shuts down the money lenders, and then he won't allow them to carry merchandise through the temple courts, what he's doing is he's shutting down the temple. The temples, the sacrificial system will shut down. It's like he, he pulled the power, like, or like the fire alarm or something. Like He has shut the place down. And not, this isn't just any random time when he's done this. This is the week of Passover. People from all over the known world are in the temple. This is like, like shutting down the power to the airport the week of Christmas. But this is a big deal. Right? So he has completely shut it down, and he does this to get everyone's attention to, to, so they will listen to what he has to say about the temple. And what he has to say involves quoting two passages from the Old Testament that we have looked at before in this, in this series. The first quote is from Isaiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, we looked at this passage when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah and the building of the second temple. Because remember that when Ezra and Nehemiah built the second temple, their focus from beginning to end was on keeping the Gentiles as far as possible from the temple. They wouldn't let them help build it. They wouldn't let them worship in it. They wouldn't eat, once they built the walls around the city, they wouldn't even let them in the city because they thought the Gentiles were the problem. And so they wanted to keep Gentiles as far away from the temple as possible, which is a problem because this passage that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah explicitly says that the purpose of the temple is to be a place where all people who want to worship God are able. He says that any, any Gentile who is loyal to God can come and worship because my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So from, from before the second temple was ever built, God had said he wanted his temple to be the place where people, anyone could come and see, God, uh, see God's relationship with his people. You remember when Jesus says you're supposed to be a light, uh, you're, not, you know, you're supposed to be the light of the world, or you are the light of the world, sorry, that was kind of a point that I made. You are the light of the world. He also says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill, for the, for the Jews, they would think of Jerusalem, and the temple is on the top of a hill, the temple mount. Like the whole, this is Jesus pointing out, this touches on that exact point that they have been keeping Gentiles as far away from the temple as they can, even though the temple is supposed to be the place where the Gentiles can see God's relationship with his people. If God's people are a light, then this is the very, supposed to be the very center of the flame. Instead, they've kept Gentiles at an arm's length. And then he also says, you have made it a den of robbers. There's two important things to know about that. Number one, the word for robber is not like a swindler or a cheat. It's not even really a thief. It's actually a, a violent rebel. This word is used other places for bands of rebels fighting against the Romans. It's people who would be out, because a lot of those rebels would support themselves by attacking travelers and stealing from them. But this word is really for a violent insurrectionist. It's the same word that's used for the, for the thieves on either side of Jesus, but crucifixion isn't a, isn't a punishment for theft. It's a punishment for rebellion. But they were violent rebels too. So he's saying, you have turned it into a den, a hiding place for rebels, which is the same thing that Jeremiah was saying in the sermon that Jesus is quoting. Jesus is quoting a sermon when Jeremiah stands in the first temple, 
and, and points out that the kings of Judea have been going out and fighting all these wars and doing whatever they want and trying to build their own empires and then coming back and hiding in the temple thinking God will never let the temple be destroyed. So we can go out and do whatever we want and write whatever checks we want and God will cash them all because he's not going to destroy his own temple. And so they had actually used the temple to sponsor their own empire. So what Jesus is saying as he puts these together is he's condemning the temple as a symbol of Israel's refusal to follow God's plan. Everything that Jesus has been saying about what, how they've been doing it wrong, how they've been going down the wrong path, is symbolized in the temple and the way they've been using the temple. And so Jesus comes into the heart of Jerusalem in the most important place in, in all of, of the Jewish religion and brings to a fine point exactly what they're doing wrong. Needless to say, the uh, Jewish authorities don't take kindly to this. And so as he's in the temple, the Jewish authorities start confronting him. And as you read this part of the story, there's a whole bunch of confrontations, some interesting things that happen. This is where Jesus talks about... um, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's, a, that's an important confrontation that happens here. And a couple others. We're not going to have time to do most of them. Uh, the first thing they do is they say, who gave you the authority to do this? Because they're trying to get him to say, well, because what gives him the authority to do this is the fact that he's the Messiah. The Messiah has authority over the temple. The, that was the expectation because the king built the temple. And so the king was responsible to God for the temple. And so if he's the Messiah, that gives him control of the temple. So they're trying to get him to say, well, I'm, I'm the Messiah. But if he says it like that, then he's putting himself in the category, then he's saying something that will get him executed by the Romans, basically. They're trying to trap him into stepping out as a rebel, as leading a rebellion. So instead, Jesus says, okay, well, you answer me a question. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing people, was that from God or from people? And they talk it through amongst themselves, and they say, well, if we say it's from God, then he's going to ask, why didn't you follow him? Because we actually didn't think it was from God. We didn't like him. He disagreed with us, and so we ignored him. But if we say it didn't come from God, then all the people around here are going to be angry at us because they really liked John. So he gets them caught in the exact same trap. And they say, uh, we don't know. Because the whole point is, this is they're trying to maneuver Jesus into saying something that will get him in trouble. They try several of those tricks, and they don't work. So eventually, uh, and, and as they're watching these maneuvers, Jesus gets the attention of a particular teacher who asks them a question, and this is where Jesus kind of clinches the whole argument. And if you're tracking with the story as it's unfolding, you'll understand why this is such an important conversation that they have. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked of him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus heard that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now here's the interesting thing. Why did they stop asking him questions after that exchange? 
it actually seems like, like they reached an agreement. Like that was fairly harmonious. You know, that wasn't confrontational. Why did that get people to stop asking Jesus questions? Well, it's because Jesus won. Jesus won the debate. Did you catch it? You have to, when you read this passage, read it in context, remembering what they're arguing about and where they're arguing, okay? So he says, love God, love your neighbor, right? Notice what his opponent says back. Well said, you are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Where do burnt offerings and sacrifices happen? The temple. That's what makes the temple important, is it's the place where you meet with God and make sacrifices. And Jesus' whole critique is that they have been using the temple to hate their neighbors. They've been keeping their neighbors out of the temple. They've been using it as, as a den to fight against their neighbors. And now he has one of the leaders of Israel saying, Loving your neighbor is more important than sacrifices. I wonder if he went, <clears throat> when he said that. Because Jesus' argument just came out of his mouth. Right? <laughs> and that's why nobody's asking him any more questions. Because they've come to do everything they can to prove that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, to prove that, that he's completely wrong. And instead, his arguments start coming out of their mouths. So the Jewish leaders attacked Jesus' message, but he refuted them all. And it says the people were loving it. This was like, like, this was, I don't know, this was like attending a boxing match, like watching talk, talk television. Like this was the big thing everybody would have turned out for and would have been reacting to and it would have gotten all the press and all the attention. This was a huge deal. So the, disciple, or the, the Jewish leaders realized we're not going to be able to refute him in public. In fact, we're digging a hole for ourselves. People like him even more now. So they come up with a different plan they decide to arrest him. And so they get one of his disciples to betray him, and they arrest him in the middle of the night, and they take him and they put him on trial. And I want us to focus on why they put him on trial, what they're trying to convict him of. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Let's pause here. Notice what they're focusing on when they bring false testimony against him. They're focusing on what he did at the temple. They're focusing on Jesus' position on the temple, and they're trying to make the case that he threatened it, that he threatened to destroy the temple. Why? Because the temple is one of the few things that most Jews agree on. Uh, they would disagree. They have all kinds of factions that would disagree on almost everything, but they pretty much all agree that the temple is good. Some of them thought it needed to be cleaned, and some, uh, cleaned out and other people put in charge. They pretty much all thought they should be in charge of the temple. But they all liked the temple. The temple was the pinnacle, the focus of their identity, their agenda. It was what made being a Jew special. And you can see why they would think that from the plan. Having the presence of God among you is what makes you special. It makes you a light to the world. It's, 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 the temple is everything. And so if Jesus is threatening the temple, that's going to get everybody angry. 
but they can't actually get testimony that proves that he made an, an actual threat to the te- temple. And they try and get him to defend himself because maybe he'll stumble and say something they can twist around to, to make the charge stick, but he says nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now here's the weird thing. It seems like we've changed topics. But not quite. There's a connection between claiming you're the Messiah and, and threatening the temple. Because they can't get an actual threat out of Jesus. But if they can get him to admit that he's the Messiah, there's nothing illegal about saying you're the Messiah. A lot of people said they were the, they were the Messiah. But if you say you're the Messiah, you're claiming authority over the temple. If you were to succeed, the temple would be in your power. And if you are generally anti-temple, and then you claim authority over the temple, that's a problem. There was a whole group of Essenes who were against the, the way the temple was being used. But they didn't have any power. They were out in the sticks. Nobody cared. Jesus is claiming to be king and to have authority over the temple, and he doesn't seem too keen on using it the way they want to use it. That constitutes a threat. So that's why the two charges are connected. That if he claims to be the Messiah, then he's a real threat to the temple. So the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and put him on trial for treason against the temple. Now they had all kinds of other motives that the Gospels work through about why they, why they had been angry with Jesus for a very long time and been conspiring against him. But ultimately, this is what draws everything to a head. It's this confrontation that Jesus made by coming to Jerusalem and talking about this and, and, and condemning the temple. So they ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And the answer they get is more than they bargained for. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Now, the reason they call it blasphemy is because Jesus goes beyond just claiming to be the Messiah uh, in the basic sense, being like the next king who's going to lead a revolution. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, which is basically saying, I'm not only going to get the throne in Jerusalem, I'm also going to get a throne in heaven. And that's where they bring in the blasphemy charges. But the thing is, it was a long-standing tradition to read the Old Testament passages that he's quoting as talking about the Messiah. It was not actually that controversial to say that those passages, one's in Psalm 110 and one's in Daniel 7, it was not controversial to say that those were talking about the Messiah. So it wasn't actually unthinkable that someone would claim this. So why did they get so angry with him? Well, I'm going to argue that it's, bec- it's not because he's claiming to be the Messiah, it's because they don't want him to be the Messiah. See, 100 years later, there's going to be a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba who starts a revolt, and the Jewish leaders rally around him, and one of the most famous rabbis of all time declares him to be the Messiah. When there's somebody who fits with their expectations, they'll call them the Messiah. But Jesus has an agenda that is completely different from the Jewish leadership. So when the person with the wrong agenda claims to be the Messiah, that's blasphemy. So the Jewish leaders sentenced Jesus to death because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted ruling over Israel. A different kind of Messiah could have claimed to be the Messiah in front of them. A different kind of candidate could have claimed to be the Messiah and they would not have tried to kill him. So they pass the sentence of death, but they don't have the power to enforce it, so they take Jesus to the Romans and they ask Pilate to kill Jesus. Pilate can see that this is some kind of 
some kind of rivalry thing going on that Jesus hasn't actually done what they said he did because Jesus has been very careful with his words. So, so Pilate comes up with this maneuver. It says, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate understands that this is some kind of Jewish rivalry between these different parties. It's not actually the crime that they're claiming it is. And so he decides, well, I'll get out of this. I don't want to pick sides. I'll get out of this by letting the crowds who love this guy free him like we normally do. So What's happening here is the crowds of Jerusalem had a chance to save Jesus from the leaders' plots. And the last time the crowds talked about Jesus, they were cheering him on. They have loved him every step of the way. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. How did we get from... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. Well, it says the high priest stirred them up, which means the high priests were telling them what Jesus had been saying in the trial. They told, him, they told them the charges that he'd been convicted of. So they're telling him, hey, he's anti-temple. This guy that's tricked you into following him, yeah, when he gets power, he's going to destroy the temple. You've been had. You've been hoodwinked. He's not who you think he is. And then Pilate offers them a choice. And this is such a key moment for the story of, the, of how Jerusalem responds to Jesus. On the one hand, they have Jesus and the message from him that we've been looking at for the past month and a half. And on the other hand, they put up Barabbas. Barabbas is a violent rebel. He is everything that the Jews want a Messiah to be. He will fight Gentiles at the drop of a hat. He will die to protect the temple. He will follow the agenda that they really want to see happen. And Pilate gives them a choice. Who do you want to live and who do you want to die? And when the people of Jerusalem understand what kind of Messiah Jesus claims to be and what kind of kingdom he's determined to build, they realize that's not the kingdom we want. That's not the king we want. We want Barabbas. So the crowd rejected Jesus in favor of a violent rebel. That's where we're going to leave the story for now. We're going to look at the crucifixion and the resurrection next week. We're also going to tell parts of this story in more detail at our Good Friday, at our Monday Thursday and Good Friday service. But I want to look at how we got to this place where Jesus was convicted and he is, he is now on his way to, to be crucified. How do we get here? Why did Jesus get the death sentence? This has been a very thorny problem in the past because people have answered that question in a way that's caused a lot of damage, a lot of genuine damage. There's been an argument that, of blaming the Jews as a people for the death of Jesus. So on the one hand, we should recognize the Romans killed Jesus, but the Jewish people did reject him as their king. But what I'm going to argue is that they rejected him for the same re- for reasons that every one of us understands, so that any one of us in the same position would have done the same thing. In rejecting Jesus, 
They are not villains. They are representatives of the rest of us. Because I, and I think we are all guilty in this moment. Because ultimately, why did the Jewish people reject Jesus? They rejected Jesus because they were unwilling to give up the temple and the identity that it represented. For 500 years, they've been telling themselves that they are the people of the temple, they are the people of the law, they are the people who will keep the law under any circumstances. That's what makes them special. You can find writer, uh, author after author from this time period talking about how the Jews are different because they keep the law no matter what. They stand out from the Gentiles everywhere they go. No one can force them to break their laws, and they will fight at the drop of a hat to defend the temple. This is what it means to be a Jew. And one day, all that fighting, that meticulous rule-keeping is going to win. We've invested 500 years, generation and gener after generation after generation of Jews invested in this plan, this way of following God, and we will not give that up. That's what it means to be us. And if we're going to have to choose between Jesus and the temple, we're going to choose the temple every time because we will not give up that part of who we are. And I'm going to put it to you that all of us have temples that we have to give up if we want to follow the way of Jesus. For every one of us, there is something in us, some part of the way we define our identity, some part of our value system, some part of our life that, is not at, that we treat as more important than Jesus does. We see this is what makes me who I am. This is what it means to be successful as me. This is what it means to, th this is who I am. Something that we, we will not give up. Whether it's um, our politics or the, the, the fight that we're taking on in culture wars or whether it's our career and that, the, what that plays in our, in our lives. Sometimes even our family can become an, an idol that we will not um, we will not submit to God. But for every one of us, there is a part of how we think of who we are, there is a part of who we want to be that doesn't fit with Jesus. And we have to decide. When Jesus stands up and says, I'm the Messiah, we have to decide, am I going to choose my identity? Am I going to choose my idols? Or am I going to choose Jesus? That is the case for every single one of us. And I find, in my case, it's a choice that I have to keep making over and over again. And there's one thing that this story, this part of the story reminds us of. There's a moment that we skipped over when Jesus is in the temple grounds with his disciples. And as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And that's what it's like as we, as we look around at the things that make us who we are, the things that we worship, and these, these things that make us who we are. We say, wow, this is so amazing. This is so important. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be me. This is, this is the most important thing it could ever be. And as Jesus looks up at those stones, he sees something different. You see all these great buildings, Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another everyone will be thrown down. See, an interesting, interesting thing happens about 40 years later. We've mentioned a couple of times that there's a rebellion that breaks out 
among the Jews, about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it starts out in the, out in the country, but it, it quickly uh, takes over Jerusalem, and they drive out the Romans, and the Romans don't take kindly to this rebellion, as they, they never do, so they come down and they start conquering Galilee and Judea, and eventually they come up to Jerusalem, and they besiege Jerusalem for almost a year. And Jerusalem is full of all the rebels who got driven out of all the other areas, and so it is absolutely full of, of these different groups of rebels who are so focused on their own agenda and their own understanding of the Jewish identity that they're actually fighting each other more than they're fighting the Romans. There's a three-way civil war going on in Jerusalem when the Romans get there, and it only partially stops when the Romans get there. In fact, there is one group that has actually set up the temple as a fortress. They have fortified the temple and turned it literally into a den of robbers. And after given every chance to, to give up, to surrender, as wall after wall is breached, they fight and they fight until finally the Romans come in, they burn the temple, they destroy the city, and the temple is never rebuilt. That tells us two things. One, it tells us that Jesus was absolutely right when he, talked, when he told the, Israelite, or the Jews where their path was leading. That is exactly where the path of rebellion leads, is to this, all this fighting and this, it was just, they were so obsessed with this agenda that they had that they couldn't even stop killing each other long enough to fight a common enemy, and it destroyed them. And so sometimes our temples destroy us. But the other thing it tells us is that ultimately, temples don't last. And I don't want to spoil Easter for you, but Jesus does. The temple was never rebuilt after that, and yet Jesus lives forever. And so the most important thing for us to keep in mind as we are choosing which temple we are going to devote our lives to is that in the end, Jesus Christ is the only temple that truly lasts. Whatever we put our faith in, whatever else we put our, our time and energy into, whatever else we build our identity on, whatever else we devote ourselves to, is not going to last. There will come a day when all that's left is Jesus. And on that day, where will you wish you had devoted yourself? Where will you wish you had found your identity? I'm going to challenge you to think about that as we prepare to sing our final song. You may, hopefully you have a palm. And you haven't done anything with it yet. This palm is a symbol of proclaiming Jesus as king. And so it's a symbol of a decision. And as we sing our final song, I want you to keep that in mind because Every time we hear the word of God preached, it's an opportunity to decide. So maybe God is putting one of these steps in your heart. Maybe God is calling you to give your life to Jesus and to recognize for the first time that he is king in your life and that you need to, to give your life to him. Today is the best day for you to make that decision. Maybe he's calling you to join a small group or a service team to get more involved into, in, in the lives of your fellow Christians and to support each other and to, to serve others. Maybe he's calling you to get 
become a member of the church, in which case you can sign up for Connect class and we can talk about uh, what, it, what this church does and who we are and how you can get involved. You can sign up for any of those through your Connect card. Maybe you don't have one of those special decisions to make, but every day, every one of us has a decision to make about whether Jesus is going to be the king of our lives. And that's what these palms celebrate. That's what these palms sign. So as we sing our final song, I encourage you to hold these up as a recognition that Jesus is our king and that we will give our lives to him anew every day. Please stand as we sing.